0: The Man Who Was Thursday, Chapter 7. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Man Who Was Thursday, A Nightmare by G. K. Chesterton. Read by Zachary Brewster Geis, Greenbelt, Maryland, April 2007. Chapter 7 the unaccountable conduct of Professor de Worms sit down, said Sunday in a voice that he used once or twice in his life- a voice that made men drop drawn swords. The three who had risen fell away from Gogol, and that equivocal person himself resumed his seat. Well, my man said the president briskly addressing him as one addresses a total stranger. Will you oblige me by putting your hand in your upper waistcoat pocket and showing me what you have there? The alleged pole was a little pale under his tangle of dark hair, but he put two fingers into the pocket with apparent coolness and pulled out a blue strip of card. When Syme saw it lying on the table, he woke up again to the world outside him, for although the card lay at the other extreme of the table and he could read nothing of the inscription on it, It bore a startling resemblance to the blue card in his own pocket, the card which had been given to him when he joined the anti-anarchist constabulary. "'Pathetic Slav,' said the President, "'tragic child of Poland. Are you prepared in the presence of that card to deny that you are in this company, shall we say, de "'Righto,' said the late Gogol. It made everyone jump to hear a clear, commercial, and somewhat cockney voice coming out of that forest of foreign hair. It was irrational, as if a Chinaman had suddenly spoken with a Scotch accent. "'I gather that you fully understand your position,' said Sunday. "'You bet,' answered the Pole. "'I see it's a fair cop. All I say is I don't believe any Pole could have imitated my accent like I did is.' "'I concede the point,' said Sunday.' I believe your own accent to be inimitable, though I shall practice it in my bath. Do you mind leaving your beard with your card? Not a bit, answered Gogol, and with one finger he ripped off the whole of his shaggy head-covering, emerging with thin red hair and a pale pert face. It was hot, he added. I will do you the justice to say, said Sunday, not without a sort of brutal admiration, that you seem to have kept pretty cool under it. "'Now listen to me. I like you. The consequence is that it would annoy me for just about two and a half minutes if I heard that you had died in torments. Well, if you ever tell the police or any human soul about us, I shall have that two and a half minutes of discomfort. "'On your discomfort I will not dwell. Good day. Mind the step.' The red-haired detective who had masqueraded as Gogol rose to his feet without a word and walked out of the room with an air of perfect nonchalance. Yet the astonished Syme was able to realize that this ease was suddenly assumed, for there was a slight stumble outside the door which showed that the departing detective had not minded the step. "'Time is flying,' said the President in his gayest manner, after glancing at his watch, which, like everything about him, seemed bigger than it ought to be. "'I must go off at once. I have to take the chair at a humanitarian meeting.' The secretary turned to him with working eyebrows. "'Would it not be better,' he said a little sharply, "'to discuss further the details of our project now that the spy has left us?' "'No, I think not,' said the president with a yawn like an unobtrusive earthquake. "'Leave it as it is. Let Saturday settle it. I must be off. Breakfast here next Sunday.' But the late Laodiceans had whipped up the almost naked nerves of the secretary. He was one of those men who are conscientious even in crime. "I must protest, President, that the thing is irregular," he said. "It is a fundamental rule of our society that all plans shall be debated in full council. Of course, I fully appreciate your forethought when in the actual presence of a traitor." "Secretary," said the President seriously. If you take your head home and boil it for a turnip, it might be useful. I can't say, but it might. The secretary reared back in a kind of equine anger. "'I really fail to understand,' he began in high offence. "'That's it, that's it,' said the president, nodding a great many times. "'That's where you fail right enough. You fail to understand.' "'Why, you dancing donkey?' he roared, rising.' You didn't want to be overheard by a spy, didn't you? How do you know you aren't overheard now? And with these words, he shouldered his way out of the room, shaking with incomprehensible scorn. Four of the men left behind gaped after him without any apparent glimmering of his meaning. Sime alone had even a glimmering, and such as it was, it froze him to the bone. If the last words of the president meant anything, They meant that he had not, after all, passed unsuspected. They meant that while Sunday could not denounce him like Gogol, he still could not trust him like the others. The other four got to their feet, grumbling more or less, and betook themselves elsewhere to find lunch, for it was already well past midday. The professor went last very slowly and painfully. Syme sat long after the rest had gone, revolving his strange position. He had escaped a thunderbolt, but he was still under a cloud. At last he rose and made his way out of the hotel into Leicester Square. The bright, cold day had grown increasingly colder, and when he came out into the street, he was surprised by a few flakes of snow. While he still carried the sword-stick and the rest of Gregory's portable luggage, he had thrown the cloak down and left it somewhere, perhaps on the steam-tug, perhaps on the balcony. Hoping, therefore, that the snow-shower might be slight, he stepped back out of the street for a moment, and stood up under the doorway of a small and greasy hairdresser's shop, the front window of which was empty, except for a sickly wax lady in evening dress. Snow, however, was beginning to thicken and fall fast, and Sime, having found one glance at the wax lady quite sufficient to depress his spirits, stared out instead into the white and empty street. He was considerably astonished to see, standing quite still outside the shop and staring into the window, a man. His top hat was loaded with snow, like the hat of Father Christmas. The white drift was rising round his boots and ankles, but it seemed as if nothing could tear him away from the contemplation of the colourless wax doll in dirty evening dress. That any human being could stand in such weather looking into such a shop was a matter of sufficient wonder to Syme, but his idle wonder turned suddenly into a personal shock, "'for he realized that the man standing there "'was the paralytic old Professor de Worms. "'It scarcely seemed the place for a person of his years and infirmities. "'Syme was ready to believe anything about the perversions "'of this dehumanized brotherhood, "'but even he could not believe that the Professor "'had fallen in love with that particular wax lady. "'He could only suppose that the man's malady, whatever it was, "'involved some momentary fits of rigidity or trance.' He was not inclined, however, to feel in this case any very compassionate concern. On the contrary, he rather congratulated himself that the professor's stroke and his elaborate and limping walk would make it easy to escape from him and leave him miles behind, for Syme thirsted first and last to get clear of the whole poisonous atmosphere, if only for an hour. Then he could collect his thoughts, formulate his policy, and decide finally whether he should or should not keep faith with Gregory." He strolled away through the dancing snow, turned up two or three streets, down through two or three others, and entered a small Soho restaurant for lunch. He partook reflectively of four small and quaint courses, drank half a bottle of red wine, and ended up over black coffee and a black cigar, still thinking. He had taken his seat in the upper room of the restaurant, which was full of the chink of knives and the chatter of foreigners. He remembered that in old days, he'd imagined that all these harmless and kindly aliens were anarchists. He shuddered, remembering the real thing. But even the shudder had the delightful shame of escape. The wine, the common food, the familiar place, the faces of natural and talkative men, made him almost feel as if the council of the seven days had been a bad dream. And although he knew it was nevertheless an objective reality, it was at least a distant one. Tall houses and populous streets lay between him and his last sight of the shameful seven. He was free in free London, and drinking wine among the free. With a somewhat easier action, he took his hat and stick, and strolled down the stair into the shop below. When he entered that lower room, he stood stricken and rooted to the spot. At a small table, close up to the blank window and the white street of snow, "'sat the old anarchist professor over a glass of milk "'with his lifted, livid face and pendant eyelids. "'For an instant Syme stood as rigid as the stick he leant upon. "'Then with a gesture as of blind hurry, "'he brushed past the professor, "'dashing open the door and slamming it behind him, "'and stood outside in the snow. "'Can that old corpse be following me?' "'he asked himself, biting his yellow moustache. I stopped too long up in that room so that even such leaden feet could catch me up. One comfort is, with a little brisk walking, I can put a man like that as far away as Timbuktu. Oh, am I too fanciful! Was he really following me? Surely Sunday would not be such a fool as to send a lame man!" He set off at a smart pace, twisting and whirling his stick in the direction of Covent Garden. As he crossed the Great Market, the snow increased growing blinding and bewildering as the afternoon began to darken. The snowflakes tormented him like a swarm of silver bees. Getting into his eyes and beard, they added their unremitting futility to his already irritated nerves, and by the time that he had come at a swinging pace to the beginning of Fleet Street, he lost patience, and finding a Sunday tea shop, turned into it to take shelter. He ordered another cup of black coffee as an excuse. Scarcely had he done so when Professor de Worms hobbled heavily into the shop, sat down with difficulty, and ordered a glass of milk. Syme's walking stick had fallen from his hand with a great clang, which confessed the concealed steel. But the professor did not look round. Syme, who was commonly a cool character, was literally gasping as a rustic gapes at a conjuring trick. He had seen no cab following. He had heard no wheels outside the shop. To all mortal appearances, the man had come on foot, "'but the old man could only walk like a snail, "'and Syme had walked like the wind. "'He started up and snatched the stick, "'half crazy with the contradiction in mere arithmetic, "'and swung out of the swinging doors, "'leaving his coffee untasted. "'An omnibus going to the bank "'went rattling by with an unusual rapidity. "'He had a violent run of a hundred yards to reach it, "'but he managed to spring, "'swaying upon the splashboard, "'and, pausing for an instant to pant, "'he climbed on to the top. "'When he had been seated for about half a minute,' He heard behind him a sort of heavy and asthmatic breathing. Turning sharply, he saw rising gradually higher and higher up the omnibus steps, a top-hat soiled and dripping with snow, and under the shadow of its brim the short-sighted face and shaky shoulders of Professor de Worms. He let himself into a seat with characteristic care and wrapped himself up to the chin in the Macintosh rug every movement of the old man's tottering figure and vague hands, every uncertain gesture and panic-stricken pause, seemed to put it beyond question that he was helpless, that he was in the last imbecility of the body. He moved by inches, he let himself down with little gasps of caution. And yet, unless the philosophical entities called time and space have no vestige even of a practical existence, it appeared quite unquestionable that he had run after the omnibus. Syme sprang erect upon the rocking car, and after staring wildly at the wintry sky that grew gloomier every moment, he ran down the steps. He had repressed an elemental impulse to leap over the side. Too bewildered to look back or to reason, he rushed into one of the little courts at the side of Fleet Street as a rabbit rushes into a hole, He had a vague idea, if this incomprehensible old jack-in-the-box was really pursuing him, that in the labyrinth of little streets he could soon throw him off the scent. He dived in and out of those crooked lanes, which were more like cracks than thoroughfares, and by the time he had completed about twenty alternate angles and described an unthinkable polygon, he paused to listen for any sound of pursuit. There was none. There could not in any case have been much, for the little streets were thick with the soundless snow. Somewhere behind Red Lion Court, however, he noticed a place where some energetic citizen had cleared away the snow for a space of about twenty yards, leaving the wet, glistening cobblestones. He thought little of this as he passed it, only plunging into yet another arm of the maze. But when a few hundred yards farther on, he stood still again to listen. His heart stood still also, for he heard from that space of rugged stones the clinking crutch and laboring feet of the infernal cripple. The sky above was loaded with the clouds of snow, leaving London in a darkness and oppression premature for that hour of the evening. On each side of Syme the walls of the alley were blind and featureless. There was no little window or any kind of eave. He felt a new impulse to break out of this hive of houses, and to get once more into the open and lamplit street. Yet he rambled and dodged for a long time before he struck the main thoroughfare. When he did so, he struck it much farther up, than he had fancied. He came out into what seemed the vast and void of Ludgate Circus, and saw St. Paul's Cathedral sitting in the sky. At first he was startled to find these great roads so empty as if a pestilence had swept through the city. Then he told himself that some degree of emptiness was natural, first because the snowstorm was even dangerously deep, and secondly because it was Sunday, and at the very word Sunday he bit his lip. The word was henceforth for hire like some indecent pun. Under the white fog of snow high up in the heaven, the whole atmosphere of the city was turned to a very queer kind of green twilight, as of men under the sea. The sealed and sullen sunset behind the dark dome of St. Paul's had in its smoky and sinister colours, colours of sickly green, dead red or decaying bronze, that were just bright enough to emphasise the solid whiteness of the snow. But right up against those dreary colours rose the black bulk of the cathedral, and upon the top of the cathedral was a random splash and great stain of snow, still clinging as to an alpine peak. It had fallen accidentally, but just so fallen as to half-drape the dome from its very topmost point, and to pick out in perfect silver the great orb and the cross. When Syme saw it, he suddenly straightened himself, and made with his sword-stick an involuntary salute. He knew that that evil figure, his shadow, was creeping quickly or slowly behind him, and he did not care. It seemed a symbol of human faith and valor that while the skies were darkening, that high place of the earth was bright. The devils might have captured heaven, but they had not yet captured the cross. He had a new impulse to tear out the secret of this dancing, jumping, and pursuing paralytic. And at the entrance of the court, as it opened upon the circus, he turned, stick in hand, to face his pursuer. Professor de Worms came slowly round the corner of the irregular alley behind him, his unnatural form outlined against a lonely gas-lamp, irresistibly recalling that very imaginative figure in the nursery rhymes, the crooked man who went a crooked mile. He really looked as if he had been twisted out of shape by the tortuous streets he had been threading. He came nearer and nearer, the lamplight shining on his lifted spectacles, his lifted patient face. Syme waited for him as St. George waited for the dragon, as a man waits for a final explanation or for death. And the old professor came right up to him and passed him like a total stranger, without even a blink of his mournful eyelids. There was something in this silent and unexpected innocence that left Syme in a final fury— The man's colorless face and manner seemed to assert that the whole following had been an accident. Syme was galvanized with an energy that was something between bitterness and a burst of boyish derision. He made a wild gesture, as if to knock the old man's hat off, called out something like, "'Catch me if you can!' and went racing away across the white, open circus. Concealment was impossible now, and looking back over his shoulder, he could see the black figure of the old gentleman coming after him, with long swinging strides like a man winning a mile race but the head upon that bounding body was still pale grave and professional like the head of a lecturer upon the body of a harlequin this outrageous chase sped across ludgate circus up ludgate hill round st paul's cathedral along cheapside sime remembering all the nightmares he had ever known then sime broke away towards the river and ended almost down by the docks he saw the yellow panes of a low lighted public-house flung himself into it, and ordered beer. It was a foul tavern, sprinkled with foreign sailors, a place where opium might be smoked, or knives drawn. A moment later, Professor de Worms entered the place, sat down carefully, and asked for a glass of milk. End of Chapter 7